Why don't you take your Bibles and get yourself all prepared to get moving down the road here. Revelation chapter 7 is, is really a very, very key chapter in our study of this book because what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 7 is that this chapter deals with a revival that is soon to come to this planet. There is a very definite revival coming, but now listen very carefully. We've got a problem in Christianity right now because Christianity in our day thinks that right now we are living in a time of revival. And maybe that shouldn't be too awful surprising for those of us who have been here for this study as we've been making our way through the book because if you look back at Revelation chapter 3, what God does in Revelation chapter 3 is he tells us exactly what is taking place at this very period of time in Christianity on this planet. In, in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, it is the seventh of seven letters that our Lord wrote in these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3. There are seven letters there that are addressed to seven churches that literally existed historically around 95 A.D. or so when when the Apostle John got the revelation from God, they were addressing specific things that were historically taking place in those churches, and yet, as you put them into the context of the book of Revelation, what you find out is those seven letters to those seven churches represent seven periods of church history. We are presently living in the seventh and final period that is described for us in verses 14 through 22, but God lets us know why it is that people in this period of time can't see straight. What he tells us here in Revelation chapter 3 at the end of verse, uh, I believe it's verse 16, verse 17, you can see there that he says that one of the things that is characteristic of this period of time is that believers are blind. They think that they see very well, and what he says at the end of verse 18 is that we need to have our eyes anointed with eye salve that we may be able to see. What, what God is letting us know here is that one of the problems that we have during this period of time in church history is that we, we have a hard time seeing things as they really are or seeing things that are going on around us the way that God sees them. We look at them one way, and God looks at the very same thing and God sees it exactly opposite of the way that we see it. For example, we, we look Christians today. Now, this may be because of our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, this could be a, a different group of people, but Christianity today is looking around at all of the things that are supposedly going on in the name of Jesus, and the Christianity of our day says, Oh, my goodness, isn't this marvelous? But what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 about these very same events is these things are perilous. They're not marvelous whatsoever. We are living in perilous times. We look around at all of this stuff and we say, oh my goodness, man, there is such a... And you hear this nonstop on radio and television. You hear, oh, there's this, this great move of the Spirit... And yet what the Bible says in second, or 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 is that these are times, the times that we're presently living in, are times where there is a great moving of seducing spirits. 
In fact, they're so seducing that people that name the name of Christ are looking at it and saying, isn't this a great move of God? When there's definitely a spirit moving, it's just not the Holy One. It's not the Holy Spirit. Believers are saying these are times when, when Jesus' prayer for unity in John chapter 17 is being answered. And yet if you know what the Bible says according to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, this is a time when Satan is bringing Christianity together to put his false Christ on the throne and Christians are beating themselves silly to do the very thing that God says Satan is going to do to the Antichrist. Unbelievable. These are times when we hear this all the time, men need to set doctrine aside and we need to just emphasize Jesus. And yet the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3 that this very time is a time when men will not endure sound doctrine. And no wonder it is that they're so willing to scrap doctrine for the name Jesus. And men today in Christianity are saying these, these, are, these are times when there is more biblical truth that is known than at any other time. And yet the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that these are the times when men are ever learning and what? Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, we've got a hard time looking at what is going on and seeing it the way that God sees it. He says you're blind, Laodiceans. Those of you living in that last period of church history, you're blind and you need to have your eyes anointed with eye salve. And here it is in pure, unadulterated form. It's right here in our hands this morning. And he says, anoint your, your, your eyes with this. So, in light of that, Christianity today is looking around and they're, they're talking about this wonderful revival that's taking place in our country. It's just they're a few years too early. But understand there is most definitely a revival coming. And that's found in Revelation chapter 7. And when it comes, this revival is going to be the greatest revival in the history of mankind. But strangely enough, this revival is going to take place after the church of Jesus Christ has been removed from this planet. What Revelation chapter 7 tells us is this revival is going to take place during the tribulation period. And this revival is going to be brought about by a group of people that have been very misrepresented through the centuries, a group of people that are called the 144,000 witnesses. Now, like we've done all, ever, ever since we started the book of Revelation, what we're going to do, we're going to go through chapter 7, we're going to go through it verse by verse, we're going to go through it phrase by phrase, and, and even word by word, but there's an issue in, in chapter 7 that we most definitely need to address. And it's of such importance that what we're going to do today is we're going to take the entire time to talk about an issue that is surfaced here in Revelation chapter 7. And next week we'll pick up with the exposition of this thing. But somewhere along the way in Revelation 7, we've got to deal with this thing. I'd like to go ahead and just do it now so that once we start the exposition of it, we can just jet right on, on through the thing. But... The issue that we need to address here in Revelation chapter 7 is there is most definitely 
an apparent contradiction that surfaces in Revelation chapter 7 compared with what we see in other parts of the Bible. Now, I'm sure that all of us that are here that know the Lord this morning and like we sang just a couple of minutes ago, you, you love to tell the story. If you've ever been out there and you tried to, to share your faith with somebody else, I know that you had to have run into somebody that as you're, you're saying all of this, they'll say, yeah, you know, but my problem is I just can't go along with all this Bible stuff because the, the Bible's, what? It's full of contradictions, right? How many of you ever ever had somebody say that to you? Okay, I, I, almost every single one of the Bible's, full of contradictions. Now, I've had that thing thrown up to me ever since I got saved when I was 16 years old, and, and somebody taught me years ago that when they say that, just, just ask them. Now, uh, that's, that's interesting. Can you, can you show me one of those? And you know what? I've used that all, ever since I was 16. That was, what, five or ten years ago or something like that. <laughs> and, and you know what? All, all through the years, I have never one time ever had anybody take me up on that. You see, normally people who say that about, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions, they, they heard that from somebody else. It's not because they sat down and they were so diligently trying to find out what was in this book, you know, that they were just searching so diligently and all of a sudden they came along and found a contradiction. Normally they heard that from somebody else and it worked real fine w with them because it, it serves as a great smokescreen. Because, you see, if I can discount the Bible then I can discount the fact that I feel guilty about my sin. So if I can get rid of the Bible, I can get rid of God, and if I can get rid of God, I can get rid of my guilt, and if I can get rid of my guilt, and I can go ahead and have a good time and not feel bad about it. So you see, it, 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 it's, it's just real convenient to talk about the, the contradictions that are in the Bible. But the fact of the matter is, there are some things in the Bible that contradict each other. Now, I want you to listen to what I just said. I didn't say that the Bible had any contradictions. What I said is there are times when what the Bible says in one place contradicts what it says in another place, and yet there are no contradictions in the Bible. There are apparent contradictions, and I would suggest to you that when you find an apparent contradiction in the Bible, that that contradiction is there by design because what God is trying to do is He's trying to use this contradiction as a neon light that is just flashing to you with a big old arrow, study here, study here. Because if you'll do that, if you'll employ the principle of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 to study, to show yourself approved unto God, what you'll find out is that those places where there are apparent contradictions in the Bible, if you'll study that thing out, God is getting ready to absolutely rock your world with what he's going to show you. And let me just give you a, a case in point, okay? This doesn't necessarily relate to our study of a Revelation, but it's going to prove the point that we're going to make this morning from Revelation chapter 7. In the Bible, there's a major contradiction between what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1 and what it says in Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 22. Now, it, it, turn back, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 6. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Kings chapter 6. And what it says here, now, I don't want to get you as hyper as, as I am 
this morning. But y'all gonna have to do it just a little quicker than that today. If we're gonna get, if we're gonna get through this thing, okay? So you know, without getting hyper or you know having a brain hemorrhage or anything like that, just try to you know pick up the pace so we can get to these places. All right? It says in First Kings chapter six and verse one, and it came to pass. Okay, now watch this now. In the four hundred and eightieth year, after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, an event that we call the Exodus. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziph, which is the second month, so understand this, this is right at the beginning of, of his fourth year to reign, so he's got three years under his belt. Okay, he's just beginning that, that fourth year that he began to build the house of the Lord. So that's, that's pretty clear. Solomon, and it's on your study sheet, Solomon began to build the temple after the Exodus 480 years, or I don't know exactly how it's worded on there, but 480 years after the Exodus. Okay, now turn over to Acts chapter 13. Now, in Acts chapter 13, to give you the context, Paul is, is preaching here. He's in Antioch of Pisidia. In Acts chapter 13, it says in verse 16, Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an high arm brought he them out of it. Okay, and again, we're dealing with the Exodus here. So it's the same context that we're dealing with in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. And now what Paul is getting ready to do here, he's going to give us a timeline. Okay, and he says in verse 18, And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. Okay, so he lets us know that Israel was in the wilderness after the Exodus for a period of how long? Forty years. Okay, now jot that down on your, on your study sheet. Verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot, and after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So, from the wilderness... To Samuel, which is the time of the judges, he says it was a period of how long? 450 years. Okay, so put 450 years down there. Verse 21. And after they desired a king, afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. So after the judges, Saul was king for 40 years. Get that down. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And of course we know from the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11 specifically, that after Saul, David was king in Israel for how long? Talk to me. You know this. Forty years, right? So put another forty years there. And then, of course, we know that after David's 40 years, Solomon took the throne. And we already saw from 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1 that at the beginning of his fourth year to reign, that he began to build the temple. So we need to add another three years to the equation, right? He, he, he begins to build this thing after he had completed three years. Now, I want you to just, you got the column there. I want you to take a second and very carefully add up the years and see what you get. What, what, what do you got? 
573. Now you see that's a problem. Right? First Kings chapter 6 and, and verse 1 says it was 480 years. Acts chapter 13 says it's 573 years. I mean, we're, we're talking about... Anybody already figured out? What's the difference? 93 years. I mean, that's, that's quite a mistake there, you know? And I mean, you can hear them now. Oh, man, you see what I'm saying to you? The Bible is just full of contradictions. I mean, how in the world are you going to trust this book? It can't even give you a lousy timeline. So how are you going to, you know, base your life on this thing? How in the world are you going to trust your eternal destiny on a book that can't even get a stupid timeline right? Okay, so we've got this, this, this problem. There's an obvious 93-year problem. And when you look at Acts chapter 13... The discrepancy is, is apparently in verse 20 where it's talking about the time that the judges ruled because 450 of the 480 years are taken up right there. I mean, that's, that's obviously the place we're going to have to look. So you see, maybe, maybe there's something there that we can find in this book that details this period for us. Okay, what book of the Bible would it that would detail for us this period of time called the judges? You guys, you see how sharp you are? The book of Judges, okay? So let, let, let's go back there. Pastor Frank is right now teaching the book of Judges on, on Sunday nights. We've been making our way, way through this, this book, and what we've seen thus far in our study of this thing is that it is what God is doing in the book of Judges is he's bringing us through the story of, of how Israel goes through a, a, a series of, of sin cycles. And, and the way that the thing goes is, is they're following God and they're just moving along and all of a sudden sudden sin comes in, leads them away from God. They run into all kinds of trouble. They come under the oppression of their enemies and they begin to be ruled by them. And so what they do is they cry out to God and you know, they're confessing all kinds of sin. They're getting their hearts right. It's a lot like us. And, and then what God does is he raises up a deliverer and they defeat the enemy and everything's all cool again. And then sin leads them away from God and you know, it, it's just same old process it just keeps being re repeated but but what I, I want you to see here i want you to notice what god does for us in the book of judges as he walks us through this process is, is he gives us a timeline of, of this book of the amount of time that they actually spent under the control and domination of other people and i want you to see this in judges chapter 3 and look at verse 8 it says therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan uh, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Okay, so put that on your study sheet there next to Judges chapter 3 and, and, and verse 8. Eight years. Now go over to chapter 3 and verse 14. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab. How long? Eighteen years. So put that down. Now go over to chapter 4 and verse 3. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So put down 20 years next to Judges chapter 4 and verse 3, and then go over to chapter 6 and verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Then go over to chapter 13. Judges chapter 13 and verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. 
Okay, now take just a second and again carefully add up the years and see what you get. How many? 93 years. Now, isn't that just a, a real strange coincidence the way that just worked out just right? You see, and, and what we find here through this apparent contradiction is, is that God is wanting to teach us something. And God's wanting to let us know that when Israel is out of the land and Israel is, is under the control of other nations, his clock stops. God counts time only when Israel is in the control of the land that he gave him. And that's why in 1 Kings chapter 6, when God is giving the official record of the kings of Israel, he says that it was 480 years. But when Paul is talking over there in Acts chapter 13, he, he is speaking to a Gentile-controlled area, and what he is doing there is he is giving them the chronological history. He's giving them the full meal deal. But God wants you to know, when Israel isn't in that land, and when Israel is under the domination of another group of people, he stops counting. And we've seen that same principle that ties very much into our study of Revelation chapter 7, because we saw in the book of Daniel that what God did is he gave Daniel a vision of 70 weeks that were to be carried out in the nation of Israel. And we studied this together. We saw how 69 of those weeks clicked off just right in a chronology. And then all of a sudden, the Messiah was cut off. It talks about this in the book of Daniel. And we entered into a parenthesis. God's clock stopped. And what we're doing right now is we're in Revelation chapter 6 and, and 7 and we're studying here is we're studying really the 70th week of Daniel we're, we're picking up where that 69th week left off you see there was one more week of years left in that prophecy and it is going to be fulfilled in a period of time that is called the tribulation period and that's what we're studying in, in the book of Revelation right now in fact let's, let's go back to Revelation chapter 7 Now, when we come to Revelation chapter 7, as I just said, the context that we're dealing with here, we're dealing with the tribulation period when God is once again dealing with the nation of Israel. This is Daniel's 70th week. And you'll notice in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4, John says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed in hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now let me just throw in here that by just letting the Bible be the Bible in verse 4 that you're going to totally wipe out the theologies of at least three American cults. The Seventh-day Adventists, the Mormons, and the Jehovah's Witnesses because they all try to get themselves worked into that 144,000 somehow when it clearly says in verse 4 that the 144,000 are of all of the tribes of the children of Israel. Well, that's how you interpret it. No, you don't have to interpret anything. That's, that's what it says. I mean, you, you don't have to try to even understand it. Just believe what it says in black and white. The 144,000 aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. They ain't Mormons. They ain't Seventh-day Adventists. They're not Christians. They're not spiritual Jews. They're, they're none of that, God says. They're of the tribes of Israel. So just take a wild stab at what it is that these group, this group of people is. They are the children of Israel. Okay, it, it, you see, the Bible is not a hard book to understand. 
and we've seen this before, you start trying to apply the things in this book that aren't intended for you in the dispensation that you're living in, and you will die and go straight to hell claiming verses right out of the Bible. That's what those groups are presently doing. But that's really not the point. What I want you to see is there's something here that's very significant about these, these tribes. Now, how many tribes are there? Talk to me. Twelve, okay? And you can, begin, you can see, beginning in verse 5, that he begins to, to list them. And he tells you after you know, giving the name of each one of these tribes how many would be sealed from each tribe. And with each of them, it's 12,000. Okay, so you got 12 tribes times 12,000 people. And, of course, the equation comes up to what? 144,000. Okay, and you can see on your study sheet, this is on the second page now, that I've, I, I've listed the 12 tribes as they're found right here in Revelation chapter 7. You can just scroll down and you can see it's the same exact ones that are listed for us in verses 5 through 8. And then you can see across the page, and I've also listed for you the 12 tribes as they're found in the book of Numbers chapter 13 verses 4 through 15 when the Lord was commanding Moses to get one man from each tribe to go and spy out the land of, of Canaan. Okay, and so you've got that list there, a list of 12. Now, both lists have 12 tribes. The only problem is they aren't the same 12. You see, and people want to say this and say, man, I'm telling you, you see what I'm saying? The Bible is just absolutely full of, of contradictions. Okay, now if we took the time, and we're, you know, you're probably looking right now, but if you were to take the time to try to match the names of both lists, what you'd find out is there are two names that are different in both lists. You may want to circle them so you can just see this. The list from Revelation chapter 7 has Levi and Joseph in the place of Dan and Ephraim. You say, well, okay, I see that. Okay, so what's up with that? Well, let me, let me take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and we're having our little sword drill, so let's get there as quickly as we can, class. Um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 29, because God lays out for us a very, very key principle that we need to understand concerning the tribes. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Look at what he says in verse 10. You stand this day, all of you before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers with all the men of Israel, blah, blah, blah. Drop down to, to verse 18. And he says, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. Now watch this. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all of the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. And what God says is any tribe that goes after and serves other gods, he says, I'll blot him out. And how that applies to Revelation chapter 7, why don't you go back there now, how that applies to Revelation chapter 7, 
is you'll remember that Joseph had two sons. Now, they're, they're both in, uh, in, numbers, uh, in the Numbers 13 list on the right side of your, your study sheet there. They're both in that list. His two sons is part of the twelve, and of course they're Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are Joseph's two sons. And if you'll look at those two lists, what you'll see is that both of them have Manasseh in them. But the Revelation 7 list has Joseph in the place of his son Ephraim. Okay, now we already saw the principle from Deuteronomy 29 that God says you've got to be real careful, tribe, because if you go after other gods, I'll blot your name out. And I want you to go back to the Old Testament book of Hosea. It's right after the book of Daniel. Which is a little bit to the right from the book of Psalms. Hosea, chapter 4, and look at verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Okay? Wipe this dude out. Just leave him alone because he's joined to idols. Look across the page, chapter 5 and verse 9. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. It's pretty clear right there, isn't it? Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. And drop down to verse 14. For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. So Ephraim's out of there. And you know what would be comical if it were not so sad? Is that there is a group of people running around on this planet right now calling themselves the Latter-day Saints or the, the, the Mormons. And you know who they claim to come from? Ephraim, of all people, who has absolutely no part whatsoever in the latter days. You know what I'm saying? Go figure. We're from Ephraim. We're the Latter-day Saints. And God says in the latter days, Ephraim has absolutely no place. He'll be blotted out. And so Joseph replaces Ephraim because God blots his name out. And then Levi replaces Dan. And of course you'll remember that Levi was the 13th or the priestly tribe and it wasn't included in the 12 in the list of the Old Testament because you'll remember, as we've studied on Sunday nights under Pastor Frank's teaching in the book of Joshua and so forth, that the priest in the Old Testament had no inheritance, but what we find here in Revelation 7 is that Levi replaces Dan in this list. And there's some, some very simple biblical explanations for that. As, you, as well, what you begin to find if you'll look at the Bible and let the Bible be the Bible is the Bible begins to make some very key connections to this tribe of Dan that you need to, be make, need to make sure that you're very aware of. Okay, now just listen. We don't have time to turn to all of these, but in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 17, listen to this now, the tribe of Dan is called a serpent. And listen to what it says in Genesis 49:17. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth 
the horse's heels so that his rider shall fall backward. Okay, so he's likened here to a, a serpent and a horse and a rider. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, in verse 22, God said of Dan, Dan is a lion's whelp or a lion's cub. Okay, now just just run that through your biblical computer here for just, just a minute. He's called a serpent and a lion. And what is Satan called in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1? A serpent. And what is Satan called in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8? A lion. Okay, so you know, just start forming some pieces there and, and, and turn to the book of Leviticus, if you would. Leviticus chapter 24. What we find here is a, a real key picture in the Old Testament that has to do with the tribe of Dan. Leviticus 24, and what we find here in Leviticus 24 is that this is the first actual instance of, of cursing in the Bible. And it's a man from the tribe of Dan who is blaspheming the name of the Lord, and I want you to read very carefully with me as we go through this and get the components of, the, of these verses here, okay? It says, And the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian. So we've got a mixed marriage here. We've got an Asian, an Israelitish woman with an Egyptian or a black father. And this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strolled together in the camp. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And they brought him unto Moses. And his mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. Okay, now listen. What's real interesting is that in Revelation chapter 13, we're going to see that there is going to be a man who is part Asian and part African. That is, what it says in, in Revelation 13 too, is that he's a leopard. Okay? He's yellow-brown with black spots all over him. This one will be empowered by the dragon who is a serpent, according to Revelation 12.9, who has the mouth of a lion and he also will speak blasphemies and who is this man talk to me hello he's the antichrist and if you think that connection there is is stretching it then that that's fine but you will have to give me this there's some pretty strange coincidences right there all lines up to point you to the fact of the Antichrist coming who is going to blaspheme Israel and to blaspheme that, that son of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now let's, we, we were in the book of Judges earlier, and now let's go over there once again. Let me show you some other things that we're going to find from about this, this tribe of Dan and how they relate to what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 17, or chapter 7. But Judges 17 is where I want you to go. Now, 
just file this in your head and get it on your, on your sheet there so you can pull all this together later. In Judges 13 to 16, you have a, a, a story here about one of the most famous judges of Israel, and it's a guy who has some major woman problems. Okay, and who, who, who is this guy that's found in Judges 13 through 16? Okay, it's, it's, it's Samson, and, and a woman is, is constantly seeking to entice him, to seduce him. And I don't know, I, I know that a lot of you know this, but a, a woman in the Bible is a picture of the false religious systems of this world. You go to the book of Proverbs, and it talks about the strange woman, and there's strange women on this planet who are trying to seduce men into bed with them, but what you begin to find is that in the Bible, that strange woman is referring to the false systems of religion, and God calls it fornication when people go into a religious system that is not according to the Word of God and likens it to a woman. And so here is this woman in Judges chapter 13 through 16 who's trying to seduce this man, Samson. And you know what tribe he's from? Take a wild stab. He's from the tribe of Dan. That's Judges chapter 13 and verse 2. Now remember, in, in Revelation chapter 7, Ephraim has been replaced by Joseph, and Dan has been replaced by Levi. And what's, what's significant about that is in Judges chapter 17 and 18, what you're going to find is that Dan and Ephraim and Levi all show up here right in the same context. And speaking of context, notice verse 6 of Judges 17, it says, In those days, and we've gone into this before, it's one of those keys of Bible study that, 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 that God has just laid out throughout the entire Bible to help you unlock the prophetic context of a passage. And whereas the phrase that Pastor Frank's been talking about some on Sunday night, we've talked about in the early part of the book of Revelation, whereas the phrase, in that day, is a, a prophetic reference to the day of the Lord or the second coming of Christ, anywhere you find it in the Bible, in that day is going to point you to the prophetic context that you're dealing with as the second coming of Christ. There's another prophetic phrase that you need to grab a hold of and, and, and make sure that you understand, and it's this phrase, in those Days And in those days has reference to the days of tribulation, the tribulation period, the very period of time that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 7 in this study, okay? So, yes, what we find in Judges chapter 17 and 18 actually happened at a point back in Israel's history, but God's letting you know that what you see here is going to be happening again in those days. You know... Those days, the days of, of tribulation, verse 6, when there will be no king in Israel, but every man will do that which is right in his own eyes. Oh, okay, those days. Okay, so, so now you know what the prophetic context is. And look at verse 1. We meet a man by the name of Micah. Now don't be confused when you see this guy Micah here with the the Micah that the, the book of the Bible is named after, okay? Different one, okay? This was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursedst, and speakest of also in mine ears, 
behold, the silver is with me. I took it. Okay, so here's this, this mama, and she's been missing some money, and she's been pretty majorly upset about it, and she's just as relieved as she can possibly be when she finds out that her son had it. So she says at the end of verse 2, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. In verse 3, lets you know why she's so upset about the money, because, bless her heart, check this out, she had promised the Lord some things about what she was going to do with, with that silver. You know, and I mean, boy, you sure wouldn't want to fail the Lord like that. I mean, once you had made a commitment with your money on that, I mean, you surely wouldn't want to back off of that thing. And so she, she can't find this money that she's promised that she was going to give to the Lord. And so she's all uh, upset. Check out verse 3. And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, Oh, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son. Now watch this. To make a graven image and a molten image. I mean, are you checking this out? This woman has dedicated this silver to make some graven images and some molten images for her son to use in worship when Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4 says specifically, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 4 says, Make not to yourselves molten gods. Exodus chapter 20, verse 23 says, Ye shall not make with me gods of silver. And here she is. I mean, she's all upset because she's, she's lost the silver that she's promised the Lord that she would use to make the very things that the Lord said don't have anything whatsoever to do with. Verse 4, Yet he restored the money unto his mother, okay, which was, was how much? 1,100 shekels, right? Remember in verse 2, every bit of it she had dedicated for this purpose, and his mother took 200 shekels of silver. I mean, not only is this woman an idolater, she's a big fat liar too, isn't she? She gives 200 of the 1,100 shekels to the, the founder or the silversmith who made thereof a graven, graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. Verse 5, and the man Micah had an house of gods. I mean, he's got his own little basilica going. And he made an ephod, which is a, a priestly garment, a, a robe, if you will, and a teraphim, which was a large idol that was used in household worship. Now, understand, these things didn't have anything whatsoever to do with Judaism. They had everything to do with paganism. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest, and notice in verse 7, Micah meets a particular young man. Emphasis, young man. Okay, And there was a young man at, at, out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite or a priest, and he sojourned there. And now, obviously, the, the reference to him being a young man is the fact that he is younger than Micah. Okay, And, and look at what Micah asked him in verse 10. And he says, Dwell with me. In other words, come live in my little basilica. Come here and live in my house of gods. And watch the next part. And be unto me a father and a priest. Okay, so here is Micah asking this younger man to be a father to him. In a religious sense, I mean, this, this isn't any, you know, be a father figure to me. He's younger than Micah. Micah is wanting him to be a priest that he can call 
father in his house of gods, and he, and he tells him here how much he'll pay him, and he tells him that, you know, how, uh, that he's going to feed him, and he's going to keep him in a, in a nice black robe, and you'll notice in verses 11 and 12 that he accepts. Sounds like a great job, man. And check out verse 13. Then said Micah, Now I know that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. I mean, no, no, really. Are you tracking with me on this? I mean, this is nuts. And what is so sad, listen, what is so sad is that Satan has always found a way to concoct some pagan religious system that he can put God's name on to give people a false sense of security so that he can damn their souls to hell. I mean, here's this guy, Micah, steeped in an idolatrous, counterfeit religious system, but he never loses his form of godliness. And so he thinks he's okay. Do you see when you come to the end of this thing, the guy thinks he's okay. And he's not okay. He's in a counterfeit, pagan, religious system that's throwing the name God all over it. And, and do you understand this morning, folks, that this morning there are over a billion people on this planet living and breathing right now at this very moment that are in the same condition that Micah is in in verse 13. They're trapped in a pagan system of religion. And they can't get out of it. And you know why they can't get out of it? They can't get out of it because they don't think they need to get out of it. Because they think they're okay. They think they're following God. And because they're black-robed priests that they call Father who dwells in the house full of idols, he uses the name Jesus a lot and he tells them that they are in the true universal Christianity. And so when you come along with an open Bible and you say, but no, 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 don't you understand that the Bible says, but why would they have to listen to you? Because you see, they've already been told, you're okay. You're in the true universal Christianity. And boy, you, you begin to understand what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when, in verse 4, when he said that Satan, listen, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the people who don't believe. And the reason they don't really believe in the true saving gospel of the Bible is because their minds are blinded to it. They think they've got it already. So what do they need to do? when actually they've got Micah's religion. And watch what God reveals about Micah's religion in chapter 18. And watch the prophetic context again. In those days, in those days, everybody know what context we're dealing with here? What days are we talking about? Tribulation, okay? There was no king in Israel. Now watch this. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in. For unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. And during the, the tribulation, and we've already seen this, what happens to the tribe of Dan? They're blotted out. You know, here it is in the tribulation period. And they're looking around for their inheritance. Verse 2, And the children of Dan sent their family 
five men from their coast, men of valor, from Zorah and from Eshdale, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said unto them, Go search the land. Go find us an inheritance here. Who, when they came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, oh boy, they lodged there. Okay, we already smell it coming, can't you? I mean, there, there's, a, there's a problem here. Verse 3, when they were by the house of Micah, okay, now this is before they even went in, they, 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 they're, they're, they're cruising by, and they, they hear somebody in there. Verse 3 says, they knew the voice of the young man, the Levite. I mean, this is, this is Micah's father priest in there, and th these guys recognized his voice, and they turned in thither, thither, that's what you cut material with, and they turned in thither and said unto him, Who brought thee hither? In other words, how would you get here? And what makest thou in this, this place? You, you see what's happening? They hear this, this guy's voice. They, they peek in. They recognize and say, Hey, man, what, what are you doing here? And, whoa, check this place out. This is unbelievable, man. Hey, what do you do in this place anyway? This is, man, this is really cool. And what hast, what hast thou here? What is this? And, and so he walks them through the whole story in verse 4, and he said unto them, Thus and thus dealeth Micah with me, and he hath hired me, and, and I am his priest. Got a new job here, fellows. And then in verse 5, they're still going to spy out the land. But you see, they, they want to know that St. Christopher is going to grant them traveling mercies. Verse 5, I'm serious. And, and they said unto him, Ask counsel, we pray thee, of God, that we may know whether our way which we go shall be prosperous. And the priest said unto them, Go in peace before the Lord is your way wherein you go. And, of course, we won't take the time to read all of it, but in verse 7, they go up to a place. Okay, here's these guys from the tribe of Dan, these five guys that are going to spy out the land. They go up to a place called Laish, and it's up by the area around Zidon, Z-I-D-O-N, which is also referred to in the New Testament as Sidon. And Jesus talked a lot about Tyre and, and Sidon, and it's that, that same area an area known in the Old Testament as the place where the Phoenician Baal worshippers settled. That's very important. You remember in our study of church history, we saw the Tower of Babel religion, and it was all about the, the, the religion of the sun god. The name of the sun god of the Tower of Babel religion in Phoenicia is Baal, and it's up here in this, this area of Zion, Zion, look at the rest of verse 7. They could see that the people there were all mellow and without protection. You see, Laish is right up there by, by Zion, and, and Zion is too far away for them to come down and rescue the people in Laish if they, they attack. And so in verse 8, they go back to their brethren in Zorah and Eshtaol, and they say, you know, so what's the deal? Can, can we take them? And in verses 9 and 10, they say, hey, it's as good as ours, and man, you're going to love this place. It's, it's wonderful. And you see in the middle of verse 10, and God's going to give it to us. And man, I'm telling you, this place has got everything in the world to offer, and oh, sounds good. So in verse 11, they send out 600 men to go take this land. Okay, are you guys tracking with this is it story? Okay, they, they've been up there. They, they check this thing out. Hey, we can do it, man. They come back. And so they bring 600 guys here to, to go take the land. Verse 12, they make their way through Kerjath Jerem. And notice verse 13. And they passed thence unto Mount Ephraim. Uh-oh. And come unto the house 
of Micah. Okay, and you know what? You, you begin to see these guys have taken a real liking to this, th- th- this place here. Okay, now I want you to get the picture in your mind. Okay, here's all of these, these 600 men, and they're going to take Laish for the tribe of Dan. And, and these five guys that had been sent to spy out the land, they bring these 600 guys to Micah's house of gods, and in verse 14, here are these 600 guys standing outside of Micah's little parish. Verse 14, Then answered the five men that went to spy out the country of Laish and said unto their brethren, uh, You know what, fellas? Uh, there is in these houses an ephod and teraphim and a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, consider what ye have to do. Okay, now, now let, me, let me tell you what, what, they're, what they're saying here. They're saying, hey, what we want you guys to do, we want you to look in here at these special aids to, to worship. And I want you to just get a peek of this. Check this out. And I want to, let's just see if you guys are thinking the same thing we're thinking. Take a look at all this. Verse 15. And they turned thitherward and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, even unto the house of Micah, and saluted him. Verse 16. And the 600 men appointed with their weapons of war, which were of the children of Dan, stood by the entering end of the gate. They can't all get in, so they're all standing as, as close to it as they can, looking in. Verse 17, And the five men that went to spy out the land went up and came in thither and took the graven image and the ephod and the teraphim and the molten image, and the priest stood in the entering of the gate with the 600 men. And it's, uh, verse 18, they, they grab all of this stuff. In the end of the verse, the priest said, Hey, what, what, what in the world do you guys think you're doing here? Verse 19, And they said unto him, Hold thy peace, lay thine hand upon thy mouth. And they're saying, Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't blow this, man. Just, just keep your mouth shut because, buddy, there's something in this for you. We want you to go with us. And we want you to be to us a father and a priest. And look at their, their reasoning. They say, come on, man, think about it. Is it better for thee to be a priest unto the house of one man or that thou be a priest unto a tribe and a family in Israel? You know what they're saying to the guy? Don't you understand this is a major promotion for you? I mean, you can go from being a, a bishop to an archbishop overnight, pal. Hey, up where we're going, I mean, you'll be like the Pope, man. Verse 20, And the priest's heart was glad... And he took the ephod and the teraphim and the graven image and went in the midst of the people. He accepts the new job. Verse 21, they head out on their way. And so now I want you to collect the pieces here. Okay? Here you have Dan, a serpent and a lion, a picture of, of Satan in the tribulation period, specifically the Antichrist. And he's getting a religious system just like the Antichrist is going to do in Revelation chapter 17. And this religious system has a black-robed priest called a father who uses idols as a part of worship in his so-called worship of God. Okay, so you got all of that? Verse 22, And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men that were in the houses near to Micah's house were gathered together and overtook it or caught up with the children of Dan. And they cried unto the children of Dan, Hey, what, what are you guys doing? And they turned their faces, that's the, the children of Dan, and said unto Micah, What aileth thee that thou comest with such a company? 
they turn back around. You know, here, here, here's Micah. He's, he's like, well, well, what are you guys doing? You know, and they, they turn around and say, hey, what's your problem, Micah? And, hey, why you got all your parishioners there with you? And in verse 24, Micah says, you've taken away my gods which I made and the, the priest and you're gone away. What have I more? I mean, I don't have anything left. So what is this that you say unto me? What aileth thee? I mean, he's, he's saying, how in the world do you have the audacity to ask me what my problem is? You stole my religion. And folks, let me just tell you something. You need to watch out for any religion that can be stolen. See, Micah had the same kind of religion as we mentioned a minute ago. Over a billion people on this planet have it. And, and you see, if, if, and I'm not trying to be smart, but the fact is, if you take away their idols and their beads and their relics and their candles and, and you poured out their holy water and you burned their, their cathedral and you did away with their priests and their cardinals and their popes and the wine and the bread that they say supposedly becomes Christ in the mass, if you take all of that away, you know what? You don't have anything left. That is their religion. I mean, they'd be crying out with Micah, Hey, what have I more? But, but you see, somebody who's truly been born again, you can't steal their religion. I mean, you can't steal our Bible because the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, is thy word settled in heaven. And you can steal my Bible with Psalm 119, verse 11. I've hid the thing in my heart. You can steal our, our hymn book right on out of the, the church, but Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 says that we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And Psalm 40 and verse 3 says, He has put a new song in my mouth. And you can't steal our priest because Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says, We have a, a high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. You can't steal our church. I mean, you can't burn it down. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 says that we are the church. You, see, you can't steal our religion. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says that Christ lives in us. And you can't steal our religion because it's not a religion at all. It's a relationship. The only way to get rid of our religion is to kill us. See, and that's what the people who've had a religion that could be stolen have always done to the people who had a religion that you couldn't steal. Through the centuries, 50 million Martyrs have died at the hands of Rome through the centuries because there was a group of people who had a religion that you couldn't steal. And you know what happens to us when you kill us? Man, you just make our day. Because we, we cry out with Paul in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Is gain in Second Corinthians chapter five and verse eight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. But you see, Mike and all the people in his church, they're shot, and not only are they shot, they're teched. Verse twenty-five. And the children of Dan said unto him, Let not thy voice be heard among us. Hey, we don't want to hear you, you man. Just, just shut up and quit whining lest we turn some of these studs loose and mop up the place with a whole bunch of you. 
Verse 26, And the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back into his house. And then in verse 27 and 28, they take all of their, their religious paraphernalia that they got. They take their super-duper deluxe instant worship kit, and, and they come up into the area of the Zidonians, Laish specifically, and they take it over, verse 29, they name the place Dan, in verse 30, immediately they set up the graven image, verse 31 tells you, it was Micah's graven image, and if you want to know what becomes of all of this, once they get themselves settled up in the land of the Zidonians, uh, and the, the icing of the, the, the cake for why it is that God blotted them out in Revelation chapter 7, all you got to do is go over to 1 Kings chapter 16, and let's quickly do that, 1 Kings chapter 16, So understand, here's the tribe of Dan up by Zidon where the, the Phoenicians live, the center of Baal worship, and they're mixing it up with all of the heathen with priests called Father who use idols as aids in worship. And watch what happens in verse 29 of First Kings chapter 16. It says, And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa king of Judah, began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel and notice his epithet in verse 30 and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him and, and if you know anything about the Old Testament you know that's quite a statement in verse 31 lets you know what this guy's problem was and why he was so evil look at the middle of verse 31 he took to wife Jezebel the daughter of Ephbaal and you know what the Hebrew name Jezebel means it means Baal exalts or Baal is husband to. And you know what her father's name, Ephbaal, means? It means with Baal. And you know who Ephbaal was? You know who Jezebel's father was? Look at it there in verse 18. The king of the Zidonians. He's the king of Zidon. You know where that is? That's where we're talking about. That's right up there where the tribe of Dan's been. And watch the power and influence that Jezebel had on her husband Ahab. The end of verse 31 says, And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And you don't have time to turn over to it, but in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, listen to what verse 25 says. 1 Kings 21, 25, it says that there was none like unto Ahab, listen, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. You see, that's what she did with her husband. Look at verse 32. He raises up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. Verse 33, he makes a, a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel that were before him. That's the, the, the influence of this satanic woman on this king of Israel's life. Here he is selling himself out to follow a satanic counterfeit religion with black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship. And not only does she seduce her husband and, uh, into this idolatrous and, and, and spiritually adulterous relationship, she seduces the entire nation of Israel, the entire northern kingdom into following Baal. And it, it, it had just been the tribe of, of Dan, one of the, the ten tribes, but now she is used, used here to seduce virtually the entire nation. And you see that in 1 Kings chapter 18. Look over there, 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah, the prophet of Israel, comes along, he sees all of this, and he gets in Ahab's face, and he says, you have forsaken 
the commandments of the Lord and you followed Baal. And he tells him in verse 19, Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto the Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves 400 which eat at Jezebel's table. And what you find out is these black-robed priests who are called fathers, these guys have a very close connection with kings and queens. They eat at Jezebel's table, verse 20. Now, Revelation 17 will tell you a whole lot about that with the kings and the queens of the world, this religious system here. Verse 20, So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And you know why all of the children are there for the big showdown? It's because all of them had been worshiping with Baal, with all of his, his priests that they, they called father, and they all knew these guys, and they want to see what's going to come down. Verse 21, And Elijah came unto all the people. And he said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. And the reason they didn't answer him a word is because they were all guilty of bowing their knee in this false, counterfeit, religious system. And I want you to turn back to Revelation now. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I want you to see what took place in a period of time in history. During the, the church age, during the Pergamus church period, under Constantine, there was a marriage that took place. The counterfeit religious system that we see back here got connected with Bible Christianity. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, look at what he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed, unto idols. See, and maybe now you'll begin to understand what verse 20 is trying to say. What verse 20 is doing is saying what took place in, 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 in history around 325 A.D. under Constantine is there was a religious system that God calls Jezebel. It came into this planet and it came to be called the universal Christianity, And whereas in the Old Testament, Satan used a literal woman called Jezebel to bring Baalism in to pervert the, the true worship of God in Israel. What we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20 is that in the church age, Satan used a figurative woman called Jezebel to bring in Roman Catholicism to pervert the true worship of God and Christianity. But one thing that you can't miss is that the reason that our Lord calls this, this system Jezebel is that it is the same exact system. Baalism of the Old Testament is Roman Catholicism. It's the same the Jesus in Roman Catholicism with its black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of God. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's another Jesus. The, the, 
it's preached that another Jesus is, is preached by Satan's ministers that are also found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The another Jesus of Roman Catholicism is really just an alias for Baal. And that's so important. If you're going to understand what the book of Revelation is, is all about and something that you want to make sure that you don't miss. Now listen. Is that during the tribulation period, now, now listen, during the tribulation period, when the Antichrist unites the world, not only governmentally and economically, but when he unites the world religiously, verse, uh, Revelation chapter 17 clearly identifies this one world system that the Antichrist is going to use. And you know what religious system it is? It's the same woman of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, which is the same one of 1 Kings chapter 16, 17, and 18, which is the same one of Judges chapter 17 and 18. It's the same exact system. It's Jezebel, and it takes you back to Zidon. It takes you back to Dan. It takes you back to Micah with the invention of that religious system that uses black robe priests called fathers who use idols as their aids in worship in the house of God. And you understand what, what we're saying here is that the one world religious system of the Antichrist, it isn't Buddhism, it isn't Mohammedism, it isn't Hinduism, Shintoism, or New Ageism. What it is is Roman Catholicism. It is that woman of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. And, and let me take you over real quick to Revelation chapter 14. And in Revelation chapter 14, we see something else that it says about this 144,000 that we were talking about. And it lets you know why Dan isn't in the list. Revelation chapter 14, you can see at the end of verse 3 that it picks up the discussion of the 144,000 again. And John tells you very specifically who they were in verse 4. He says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And you see, that's why the tribe of Dan isn't in the list of the 144,000 in Revelation 7. The tribe of Dan has been in bed religiously with that woman, Jezebel. And he could not be in that group of 144,000. So Dan isn't there. Because as we've seen this morning, all the way through the Bible, God lets us know that Dan is specifically tied to the Antichrist himself and the false religious system of the Antichrist. And turn back to our, our final place this morning, the book of Amos. It's right back there where we were next to the book of Hosea. The book of Amos, chapter 8. The prophetic context in chapter 8, the very last days of the tribulation period, God says in Amos chapter 8 and verse 14, they that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, thy God, O Dan, and notice that the God of Dan has a small g, and the end of the verse says, even they shall fall and never rise up again. Major case of I've fallen and I can't get up. 
connected to Dan, the God of Dan. And wow, you know what? I know we've given you an incredible amount to chew on today. I mean, we could have we could have drugged that out for several weeks, and some of you probably feel like we did. But I want you to listen. This book makes no mistakes, y'all. It, it, it lines up in, in Revelation chapter 7. When you see that apparent contradiction that's there, you know what it is? It, it, it's God saying, Whoa, whoa. Look here. Look here. There's something that's too important for you to miss. So what I did is I jolted my word. I, I made it so where you, you had to deal with it, where you had to go back and study it. Everyone that is a Bible believer, I made you had to go back and look at it. And, and, and we've done it today. And you know what? God is trying to scream out to some of you folks. He's trying to scream out to you. You're in a false religious system. And one of the hardest things that you'll ever have to do in your life is to look out of your religious system to see that the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible is not the God, is not the Jesus of your religious system. And I know that if you're in a religious system this morning that uses black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of God, I understand that some of the things that you've heard today have been very unsettling to you and I understand that probably through the course of this thing you've gotten somewhat upset with me and that's okay if God can use it to jolt you today so that those blinders that Satan is trying to use to make you think you're okay and I do appreciate the fact that you've You've hung around this morning. But now that you've hung around, did God open His eyes, your eyes to His truth? Do you understand that you're in a false religious system that's got you trapped? And the, it, listen. We're not talking about you need to be a Baptist. Did you hear that anywhere through anything today? Nobody's trying to make you a Baptist. What we're trying to say is God made this thing so simple. All you have to do is turn from all of the religion of the world, whatever it is, whether you use black-robed priests called fathers or not. Religion, no matter what it is, is not going to cut it, y'all. The God of that book came to this planet to die on a cross because we couldn't do anything with our sin. Because religion, all the religion in the world couldn't do anything with our sin. It had to be paid for with blood and it had to be perfect blood. It had to be the blood of God. So God became a man, died on the cross for our sins. And I know if you're in a religious system, you believe all of that. But if you add anything to what he did, seven sacraments, works for salvation, baptism, whatever it is, 
when you add anything to what Jesus Christ did, you've nullified the power of what Jesus Christ did to save you. So you've got to get rid of all of the, the trappings, all the religion, and you come before God and say, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I know. I can't get dunked enough, I can't get sprinkled enough, I can't go to confession enough, I can't eat the wafer enough, I can't do anything. I come, I'm a sinner, will you please forgive me, come into my life and be my Lord and my Master. It's that simple. So please, don't go out of here today saying, oh, he's holding up, he thinks Baptists are the only ones that are right. I wouldn't give you two cents for Baptists. Boy, the God of that book has got a message. That's the thing here today. Are you hearing the message that God is saying to you? All right, let's pray. Oh God, I know we've we probably bit off more than we could chew this this morning in covering all of that. And the Lord, the hour is is so late, and people are are so trapped in. In, in systems of, of religion all over this, this planet. And some, somehow something has to happen to get them to look outside of that system. And so, Lord, I pray today that you take these things and, and use it to cause people to see that the, that the devil has been working a strategy now for centuries and centuries centuries now just changing the clothes just changing the face of the system just calling it something different and throwing your name all on top of it to make it look like it's okay when you call it Jezebel when you call it the religion of the Antichrist oh God please save people out of that today pray that this would be the day that people in this room see the reality of who you are and the simplicity that is in Christ and flush religion and turn to you. Now with our heads bowed, if you're here today and God's speaking to your heart about receiving Christ as our service is concluded here in just a second, our, our pastors are going to be up on either side of the worship center there to, to talk to you, to answer any questions that you may have. But if God is speaking to your heart today and you want to drop religion and grab the God of the Bible and enter a relationship with Him, then would you come and, and talk to our pastors as our service is concluded? And, oh God, work in, in hearts right now save the lost and with those of us that do know you help us to have a burden for the people that are trapped in, in that system may it break our hearts to the point of tears we ask in Jesus name